Well, I have a very uh, unusual title. Why moms, why young moms need not fear the tribulation. Now, I'm using this title because I want to stir up a conversation that will go on for lots of years. And I assume, I like to say young moms, because that's the group that I think thinks most about what their children, their young children in their home are going to face 10 and 20 and 30 years later. I'm just assuming that's the group that thinks most about it. I might be wrong, but I think that's true. I think, in my opinion, the 20-something moms, the young moms now 30-somethings, I don't actually believe you will face that as a young mom. I believe that the fear that young moms feel right now, and lots of them are feeling it, it's increasing even more and more. And I somehow, I, I, I see something good happening in that fear, though fear is not good, because it's causing people to, it's awakening their hunger to go deep on what the Bible says about that period of time. And it, if my opinion, I'm not, I'm not prophesying, I think the young moms now will be grandmas when it's happening. And it's their children, their daughters, and granddaughters that will be the young moms. But they have a journey. They're all energized because they are looking at it kind of like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And that's actually the gift of God for your grandchildren years down the road because you're going to have living understanding. You're going to have proven truth that has established your heart for years Though that's not necessarily why you're doing it right now, but at the end of the day, it's going to end up a gift even to your daughters and granddaughters that in their day will be young, young moms who will be facing this. And I remember the first time I met Bob Jones 38 years ago. He talked to me and he says, uh, your children, they were age two and four, and your grandchildren, my, my what children? Your grandchildren. The Lord is doing this and this and this, and your grandchildren will be in their strength when many of these things happen. I go, my grandchildren? I remember how weird that was, but now I know how it's really, really real. And again, I think that moms, young moms, are stirred and provoked because they see the end time storyline, and they want to lean into the conversation. Well, you might say, is this message even relevant for me? I'm not a young mom. Well, I think it is because all of you have a young mom in your friendship circle or in your family somewhere. And so you want to be an encouragement to them. And I've, my theory is this. If young moms get answers to where they're free from fear, then I think those answers will work for everyone else. I think it'll work for everyone else. Well, the last few weeks, I've had a number of conversations. I just started bringing this up. I said, I, I, want to, I want to talk to some old and young male and female. What do you think the fears are? And what do you think the answers are? And uh, uh, so I just started that. Paragraph A in the introduction is that the primary fear, I think, I, uh, this is my uh, assumption that a young mom has, is related to the fact of the fear of her children experiencing suffering, physical violence, they're thinking, you know, when my son or daughter are two and three years old, they're going to be 15, 20, 25, 30. Will they experience physical violence? Will they experience starvation? Will they have emotional anguish just because of terror, just fear, that will paralyze them one day? I remember talking to Dana Candler just recently on this, and she gave me a great sentence. She goes, I thought I was really courageous thinking about the end times until I had children. <laughs> she goes, and when I had children, thinking of them going through the great tribulation made me see I had more fears than I had ever identified. Paragraph B, my message tonight is not going to be comprehensive at all. Because one reason, it's still being formed in my own understanding. But I want it to be formed in context to conversations over lots of years with lots of people on this subject. We've ha I've had several of them the last couple of weeks. So I'm, in, I'm wanting to stir up all of you to kind of launch a, a long-term conversation in your world with people about this subject. 
And so I'm going to, on my website, the, uh, my teaching library that I've had for so many years, I'm going to start a new series. It's, it's going to be called, i got it written out here, The Why Young Moms Need Not Fear the Tribulation Series. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of a, a, a head turner. You know, that title, you go, what? You know, almost everyone that I said this week, they went, you're going to do what? And it, it had the same reaction. Then I went, some people went, Huh. Others went, cool. Others went, interesting. Others said, gutsy. You know, I had all these different comments. Well, I want to create this uh, whole series on, on, on the MikeBickle.org teaching library. I want to host a number of panel discussions with young women, older men, children. I want to have dis- lots of panels. I'm going to post a number of articles and blogs and and more. And so I just want to maybe, you know, one day there'll be, I don't really know, 30, 40, 50, 60 content pieces on this that is, would be an, an inspiration to others and drawing out many, many people in the conversation. And so I just wanted you to be aware of this because I don't think it's too early to begin to think this through in a far more specific way. Well, let's go to paragraph C. A lot of folks go, I tell you, I got the answer. I know why young moms need not be afraid, the tribulation, because they won't be here. They're going to get raptured beforehand. I go, no, I don't think that answer is going to hold up when it really comes down to it. And I don't want to get into all that. I used to believe that strongly. But I'll tell you, as many of you are aware, that millions of people around the world, even in this last five or ten years, are transitioning in their end-time theology to understanding the biblical uh, a foundation for why the church will be here during the Great Tribulation, but it'll be the church's finest hour. The church will be in power, in victory. It'll be the finest hour for the church, actually. So it's not an hour to escape from, but it's an hour where God magnifies his grace and a billion soul harvest coming in and many, many things. Well, here in paragraph C, Matthew chapter 24, this is a really key passage from the lips of Jesus. And I'm not going to break it down, but I just want to give you, a, I just want you familiar, most of you in this room and on the web stream, you're familiar with most of these uh, uh, ideas, at least the, the, the initial ideas related to these uh, terms and these themes. When you see the abomination of desolation, and in one sentence, the abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist takes off his mask, he's parading, masquerading as a man of peace, he pulls his mask off and shows the earth he's a man of war. And he shows Israel, I never was for you, I was deceiving you the whole time. And he goes in the temple, he sits into the Holy of Holies, declares himself to be God, establishes the mark of the beast system, the, uh, the image, all of those things, that's all related to the abomination of desolation that Daniel talked about. When that happens, when the Antichrist no longer is masquerading as a man of peace, but he shows he's the arch enemy of Israel, the body of Christ. He pulls his mask off, says in verse 16, those that are in Judea, that's the region right around Jerusalem, flee. If you're in the field, don't even go back. Because the Antichrist, what will be on his mind is a lockdown of the nations. That's why he says, don't even go pack. Leave right away. Verse 19, woe to those that are pregnant and those that have nursing babies. In context, it's talking about in that geographic area right there. It's not saying everyone on the earth that has a baby, woe to you. But in that area, because it will be hostile in a very intense time. Then, verse 21, the great tribulation starts. Verse 29, after the great tribulation, at the end of it, verse 30, all the tribes of the earth, they will see Jesus on the clouds. And when they see Jesus on the clouds, verse 31, it's at that time, after the great tribulation, he appears in the clouds, he sends forth his angels, and the church all over the earth is raptured and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So that's kind of the broad strokes of what's happening that, uh, from Matthew chapter 24. Paragraph, you know, I've had people say, well, let's debate whether the tribulation is, uh, I mean, the rapture is before it or after it. I have zero interest in that. I just don't even have any energy when someone says, I go, hey, it will take care of itself. (laughs) 
When the abomination of desolation takes place, nobody will be debating it anymore. I said, don't worry about it. Just love Jesus and go hard after it. Let's be buddies. And I'm not going to argue with nobody about any of that. It will take care of itself. It's like the groups that say, I don't believe in the gifts of the Spirit. I don't believe. I think they passed away. Over the years, I've had people that want to debate it. I said, no, it'll take care of itself. You know, pastor so-and-so, I'm praying your wife gets a dream and a vision and an angel pair. It will take care of itself. I don't need to argue about it. Let's just talk about Jesus and be friends and honor each other, and it will take care of itself. So I just want to speak to the people that are hungry for it and bless the ones that aren't and still be friends with them and still enjoy the Lord together. Well, in paragraph D, paragraph D, the, I'm using the word, this is key, this is my terminology, I mean, it's lots, uh, many, many people use the same tem- terminology. When I'm saying the end times, I'm talking about those six, seven, eight, I don't know, there's no real number, decades leading up to the Great Tribulation. When I talk about the end times, I'm talking about decades, whether it's 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, I don't know, but it's years. That's what I mean by the end times. The Great Tribulation is the final 42 months The Bible calls it 42 months or three and a half years. Say it either way you want. It's the final three and a half years of that end time storyline. And so I'm talking specifically about the final three and a half years. I'm not talking about the 30, 40, 50, 60 year buildup leading to that period of time. I'm talking about that particular time right now. And what I'm talking about, so, oh, I have written here. I put a little funny sentence in there. Paragraph D, I just saw it. Uh, you know, people go, oh, no, I'm in the end times. I can't get married. I go, no, hey, if you like her, marry her. Just come on, let's start your business, go to school, be responsible, make money. That, all those are good things in the will of God. Just keep doing those. They go, what about the end times? I go, this thing could go on for some decades. And so hang in there and enjoy your children. Okay. <laughs> but in that final three and a half years, things will take care of themselves. Nobody's going to have to tell anybody Hey, this isn't the best time to start an experimental dating time of your life. You know, once the abomination, it will it'll be clear. Nobody's going to have to tell anybody that. They're going to say, I don't really think this is the time for us to go on our first date, you know. <laughs> but this, this is not that time. So go ahead and take her out. Yeah. <clears throat> and pay. Pay for it, okay? Don't do that. We all split it 50-50. Remember, I'm 66, so this is the 70s, you know what I'm talking about. We always did it that way. Okay. So what I'm addressing, just even in this conversation, just laying a few terms out. Again, I'm not going to get very far, but I just wanted to lay some tracks for conversation. That's really what I'm doing tonight, stir you up to lay out some ideas. You go, huh, I didn't think about that. And there's many, many more premises and ideas that are on this paper. I just wanted to start it, like... Have the canoe, just push it out, you know, just push it out into the, into the stream and get it going, get, get the conversation going. Because it will be years we're talking about this, but I think those two and three-year-old girls right now and their children, we're talking 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, it will be a gift if a whole company of believers across the earth start getting insight in a way where their hearts can have confidence and boldness and it makes sense what the Bible's saying. So I think it's not too early to start these conversations. But in this, uh, uh, tonight even, and mostly even in this whole series I'm gonna do, I'm not gonna spend most time talking about the pressures, maybe a little bit here and there, related to God's judgments or natural disasters. But I'm focusing, at least at this time, on government-sponsored persecution. That's, the, that's what I'm zeroing in on. I'm not talking about every type of trouble. There's a day to talk about all of that. I believe that we're transitioning. I've been saying this for six months now, <clears throat> but I really am con, uh, more convinced, uh, even than when I first started six months ago, eight months ago saying this, that the 2020s, I believe, will prove, that t- I mean, the whole 10 years, to be the most dramatic transitional decade in human history. Not in recent history, more change will happen in 20 different areas in 10 years than any other time in human history in the 2020s. I think the 2030s will be more intense than that in terms of change, but good change and bad change. So lots of areas of change, 
meaning we're in that trajectory. We're never going back to business as usual. And I don't mean, you know, after COVID lifts, where the church services will be different. I'm talking about life on planet Earth is in a significant transitional dramatic change. I mean, leading us into those, that unfolding of events that lead, here it is, to the transition of the earth to the age to come. That's what's on the Lord's heart. There's one generation that witnesses the good and the bad. That's the transition of the planet to the age to come. And the Lord's hand is on that generation in his favor. And he has much to do in them and through them. But he wants them cooperating with him. And he will succeed. So again, I don't have energy to argue with people about it. And I said, no, this is not my deal. It's way bigger than anything I'm about. Jesus is such a good leader. He's a far better leader than Satan is a deceiver. Trust me, he's a far better leader than Satan is a deceiver. This thing is gonna work. There will be a billion plus, well over a billion, who will be walking in faith and power and unity and love all this deception, there will be a billion that he gets across that line. I mean, the numbers will be massive amounts. And so I'm excited, and I am full of faith and confidence. Well, the, the drastic change and the pressures, the change has a lot of pressure in it, but the change has an measure, uh, uh, a measure of glory as well, not just the pressure. I have here in paragraph E, pressure in society, what happens, like we've looked, you know, the last year or so, is that the pressure changes the conversation. When, I mean, the whole COVID and 10 other things, people talk to God in a different way about different subjects. People talk to one another in a different way about different subjects. Family conversations are different. The conversation changes when pressure happens. And so I'm putting this famous C.S. Lewis quote, pain insists upon being attended to. When there's pressure and pain, it, you have to attend to it. You can't ignore it. God whispers to us in our pleasures. This is a very well-known quote. You've heard it probably a number of times. He whispers to us in our pleasures. I mean, he's for those God-ordained pleasures, but he whispers. I love you. I love you too. He speaks a bit louder in our conscience when he's talking to us directly, but he shouts to us in our pain. It's the megaphone to arouse a deaf world. People pay much attention and they're in intense conversation. Even when the pain's caused by the devil, they're talking to God in a whole new way with a whole new conversation. Roman number two. Well, uh, one of the main things that Jesus said is right here in Luke chapter 21, and you can just uh, read it on your own. It's verse 26. When all these things happen, there's gonna be billions of people, their hearts are going to be fainting with fear. And fainting from fear in, a, in an introductory way where all are really captured to literally dying of, of, of heart attacks with fear and every step in between. So fainting, many, many levels to this. But fear is going to be rampant across the planet and already in the last year or two, fear has gone up so high, but beloved, we're at the beginning of the beginning of it. And we are children of the king. We're the bride of Christ. We're connected to the bridegroom king. Fear is not our portion. And we have answers for fear. We can struggle with fear, but we've got ways out of fear. And so Jesus said, I want you to know, verse 26, fear is going to increase and people will faint. It will become a characteristic of the, of, of the human family on planet Earth. And already it's super obvious. But notice this next phrase. And they will be afraid of the expectation of things. It's that phrase, the expectation of things. Now, again, in this conversation, and I'm aiming at the young moms, because again, if the young, mom, if the young moms get answers that bring them peace, I believe we will have answers for everybody. If we can have them at peace about their young children and how they view it, then I think we, we've really, really connected with the Lord's heart. It, it will work for every single other person if it works for young moms thinking about their children. That's why I'm zeroing on this. But I want to identify, I have here in paragraph A, I want to stir up a conversation. I want to launch it tonight and just stay with it for years. Not every meeting all the time, but in this series, uh, mostly I won't talk about it publicly, but I'll have 
all to have video series and panel discussions. And I just want to stir this thing and keep it going as we're uh, learning uh, how to identify what is it we expect and why is it that we expect those things. Says who? And as I've talked to even the last couple weeks on this, it is not surprising, but I'll just say this. Most people have these exaggerated expectations that are negative, but they don't know why. I said, well, where'd you get that? They go, well, you know. I go, no, no. The problem is, I, I'm saying this nicely, the problem isn't, you know, the problem is you don't know where you got it. <laughs> and if you, we can help tease this out, and you find out that you've got these exaggerated fears of, of things you're expecting, it can pull you out of the frenzied state because if the enemy wants us in a frenzied, <laughs> so it hinders us from engaging with the truth. So he, a lot of people don't know. I've asked a lot of questions the last couple of weeks on this. And, you know, my children are going to be tortured. I says, says who? Well, you know, oh, yeah, that one movie. Yeah, I saw that movie too. But how else do you know? Well, what do you mean? How do I know? It's the tribulation. Like, I need more information. And I'm doing this as an act of pastoral care. And they go, I, I don't really know why I know. I go, there you go. That's the point. I want to zero in on expectations that are false. But at the same time, I want to gird us up for what's real trouble. And I want to engage in spiritual truths and promises that when the trouble that's real touches us, we've shifted our paradigm and we're anchored and rooted in the gospel of the kingdom in a way that our hearts are steady and we're ready because we're living for the age to come. So it, there's a whole bunch of different answers in all of this. Again, many people I have written here, uh, are uh, they have exaggerated fears, uh, expectation of things. And it's not based on facts or biblical truths, but they get in a frenzy. Paragraph B. After Jesus talked on Matthew 24 on the final week, that was on Tuesday, here he is on Thursday at the Last Supper in John 14. And some of you are tracking with me uh, on my Friday nights. Typically here, we have, a service, we have services here every Friday night, and I'm on a 50-part series, by the grace of God, 50 messages that I want to give together with Stuart Greaves and some others over the next year or two on John 13 to 17. Line by line, truth by truth, I think we're about message about 10 or 12 or 8 or something like that. I don't know, but we want to stick with it for a year. Every phrase that we can draw from, because in John 13 to 17, Jesus is actually telling them how they can live free from fear of what he told them on Tuesday in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. He says, I gave you a lot of stuff on Tuesday. Here it is now. I'm going to show you how your heart can, uh, how you can keep your heart from being dominated by trouble. And a lot of folks just imagine that, well, I just by the grace of God, just make my heart get free of trouble. And he says, no, 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 you've got to do your part. You've got to draw on truths. Don't let trouble dominate your heart. And if you will do, hold on to truth in various ways, and I'm breaking that down the best I know in these 50 Friday nights, then he's, the Lord is saying, I'll give you peace, supernatural peace, but you have to do your part too. You can't just look back and say, Lord, just give me peace. He goes, no, no, you've got to not let trouble dominate. When it rises up, you've got to say what I say and draw on the truth that I'm going to tell you, which he did in John 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those truths are critical. Well, fear, paragraph B, is the main thing we have to diffuse. Because if we don't diffuse fear, the way just we all are made, we will search for anything to alleviate the fear that grips us. If we're in fear, we'll reach for anything to kill, to get us free from that fear. And that makes people very vulnerable to deception and manipulation. Because they go, hey, if this gets me out of fear, maybe it's not great, but I don't feel bad anymore. The Lord says, no, you don't want to do it that way. It makes, fear makes people very, very vulnerable because they'll be searching for that which can alleviate the fear. And that's an open door of vulnerability to deception and all kinds of wrong approaches to find solution to the fear. The enemy wants to trap us. So he gets us into a frenzy. He wants to trap us in exaggerated assumptions. Because he wants us in a frenzy so that it hinders us 
from engaging with truths. So I want to be intentional about identifying and challenging false assumptions. I want to look at that. I I just put a few on the notes here. There's many, many more that that we could have in a year, two, or three, or four. You know, it won't be, you know, a few assumptions. We'll have many, many that we've identified. When I push people to tell me why they think this, again, I've already said this, many of them can't. They go, I don't, I don't know. You know, and jokingly, I say, I saw that movie too. Because it's not based in truth or the Bible. It's based in the imagination. Okay, let's look at uh, page two here, Roman number three. Here's, I have seven false assumptions or assumptions. And there could be 50. So this, I'm not trying to be comprehensive. I'm just laying out some tracks to start a many-year-long conversation with many friends here and abroad. Paragraph A, there's two extremes to avoid. Exaggerated false assumptions, which many people have, but they don't even know they have them, and unbiblical false optimism. We want a biblical perspective without dismissing the negative with false optimism, but at the same time not being hooked by the enemy's entrapment so we are in a frenzy all the time, so we can't just so, you know, in mode like that, the Lord says, no, settle down. I have truth. You and me, we're together forever. Let's talk again. Get him already talk. I'm just so upset. I'm just, settle down. Don't let trouble dominate your heart. The enemy is going to do everything he can to keep that from happening. Assumption one. My, and it's not in any order, by the way. And again, there could be 50. My children will live with despair because they won't have a normal future. My two-year-old, when she or he are in their 20s, their life will be super hard. They won't be able to do ballet or play football or play on the sports team or a musician. And how do you know they won't? Well, they won't, I don't think. My children will be filled with fear. Because of what will happening, because you're assuming that your children in 20 and 30 years and your, grandch- and, and your grandchildren will be filled with the fear that you have. But you don't have answers yet because you haven't done. And they're going to have a whole generation of answers before they're even in their teen years. There's going to be millions of people that have settled this. And you don't. They're not going to be like you. I had a few ladies go, that's amazing. That, that's actually good news. Because you've, you're new at this. But in 20 and 30 years, we're going to, there's going to be millions that understand these, these truths and these, par, these paradoxes. So, paragraph D, assumption three. My children, when they get older, in their 20s and 30s or their teens, they'll be totally ostracized from society because the kings of the earth are going to do this and that. They'll be totally ostracized from society. I go, how do you know that for sure? Yeah, there will be governmental uh, uh, government-sanctioned penalties but beloved, there's going to be a billion on fire believers operating in the spirit, and the family of God's going to be the strongest of any time in history. They're going to have more godly friends that prophesy than you ever dreamed of. I mean, when you were in the youth group, there were three radical believers. When they're in the youth group, there'll be 300 of them, all of them moving in signs and wonders. When you're in the youth group, you cared about social media and who got it and who didn't and did blah, 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 blah. They won't even care about that. They'll say, hey, mom. Grandma, we're into something way more intense. Well, honey, don't you need this? No, no, we're good. We're, we're involved in a mission. It's happening, and the power of God's moving with us. So I've talked to ladies. I go, you're just assuming that the paradigm of you when you were 15 and your youth group is going to be the same one of your children and grandchildren 15 and 20 years. It won't be. Oh, that's interesting. Assumption four. My children will suffer for lack of food or resources. They just, they'll starve. Well, how is it that a billion of them are still going to be alive when the Lord comes? How do they all, well, the mark of the beast, they can't buy or sell, but a billion of them will still be here. Do they just like not eat for 18 months and they're all super, no, the Lord has ways. There's a lot of answers actually to these. They'll suffer physical violence. They'll be tortured, probably even martyred. Assumption six, I won't be able to bear the pain of the separation of them if they're martyred. It will be so intense if I have a loved one, especially a child, or, or they won't be able to bear it if I am. 
Assumption seven, they'll probably be hurt by the judgments of God in the book of Revelation. And every one of those are assumptions, and you can poke holes in every single one of them. And that's what I want to do in conversation, in panels, in blogs, in articles, and just get a lot of folks talking about this. I don't want them all talking in our world. In their own world, start conversations. Just get it going and get the Bible in the center of it. Roman numeral uh, four, the prophetic certainty is one thing we have. And people kind of try to believe in these prophetic certainties, these promises, but if they think for a minute what this implies, it's incredibly glorious. For instance, Jesus, paragraph A, is coming back, and I'm not gonna read the whole thing, for a church with a vibrant spirit. I'm talking about a billion Two billion, I mean, we don't know the number, but I believe there's going to be a billion so harvest, and there's hundreds of millions of believers, some say a billion believers, then the billion so harvest, that's two billion, say a couple hundred million fall away, you still got a billion or two, and Jesus is coming, and the church won't be a Laodicean spirit, you know, uh, weighed down under a spirit of dullness, spiritual dullness and compromise, she'll be a prepared bride. The first commandment will be first. She'll have a vibrant spirit. She'll love Jesus. She'll walk in meekness. She'll be a f millions, I mean hundreds of millions of these people will be marvelous in their fellowship and camaraderie to one another. It's gonna be the greatest time in history. Jesus said in John 17, they're gonna be one because I'm gonna pour glory on them. They're gonna be one. They're gonna have a family dynamic in the body of Christ in cities and regions. This implies millions of weak people, guys like us, guys like me, people like you, millions walking in mature love, millions walking in courage and faith. Think what the interaction with those people are gonna be. Think about the Lord's taking weak people like us and he's moving and he's setting this thing up. Paragraph B, the greatest harvest. I believe it's a billion souls and I don't wanna get into that right now. I'm not trying to prove all that I'm just giving you a kind of, huh. Paragraph C, spirit of prophecy, the key phrase, all flesh. Every single born-again believer will prophesy and operate in the spirit. Not just that one guy and that one gal and not here and there, all flesh. There's a down payment of this happened on the day of Pentecost and it's happened a little bit over church history and it's more's happening today, but it's going to be every single believer is going to move in this. Paragraph D, Isaiah 40, which is an end-time passage. The Lord says, he goes, I'm going to come to you with a strong arm. I mean deliverance. I'm going to show power is what it means. I'm going to manifest my power. I'm going to gather all the lambs. He's talking about his people now. He's, he's actually talking about believers. And I'm going to carry them. I'm going to lead, gently lead those that have young ones under them. I'm going to come and help these moms and dads. And I'm going to gently help them. And I'm going to show my strength. Paragraph E. It's going to do miracles. This is one of my favorite verses of, uh, in terms of miracles. Micah 7.15. Look at it. He says, the miracles that I did in the days of Moses in Egypt. I mean, the ten plagues split the Red Sea. Manna appears every day food comes to two to three million people. They're fed for 40 years every day from the sky. Water comes out of a rock enough for two or three million to be satisfied, an incredible amount of livestock, water in the middle of the desert is sufficient. And the Lord says in Micah 7, I'm gonna do those miracles again. And Jesus said, greater works than these. And that is such a big statement. It's just so kind of almost outrageous to our natural mind. It can't be what it means. Yeah, it does. I've talked to many preachers. They go, that's TV ministry because through technology we can reach more people. I go, no. I think it's Micah 7, 15. <laughs> I think it's greater works because Jesus didn't do many of the Moses miracles, but they're gonna happen in the end time church. Now, I got a lot of verses on this. I just, uh, that's not my point on this right now. Top of page three. Supernatural provision. I mean, manna from the sky, water from the rock. You know, if you study the four gospels, and you, I don't have the data right in front of me. I've worked on it a bit, but I just, I'm just kind of off the cuff right here. Three times, Jesus did miracles of multiplying food. 
Not the same miracle told three times. That's good. No, three different occasions. There's only a couple t- categories of miracles that happened in the record three times. That's one of the main ones. Jesus is what the miracles he did in the gospel is a prophetic snapshot of the miracles he's going to do when the Father lets his glory be known on the earth. I am absolutely convinced there will be miracles of food at a level that we can't even imagine. I assure you the Antichrist does not have the final word on food and selling and provision. And there's hundreds of millions. We don't know. I said a billion. I don't know how many will be alive at the end, but it will be hundreds of millions. They didn't die of starvation. They ate. Well, they didn't buy or sell, but they ate. How? Well, we got lots of verses in the Bible. Supernatural protection. When God poured out his judgments on Egypt, the children of Israel were in Goshen. And none of the miracles, none of the judgments hit Goshen, didn't hit the subdivision where the slaves were. God's going to have places in the earth where the Goshen principle is operating. And there's, again, there's 10 verses on those kind of things. Supernatural deliverances. Peter twice was in jail and the door opened by an angel. The third time, they killed him in Rome. When he was in jail, they cut it, but he never knew it. The whole body of Christ, they never knew when the angel was coming. People will be in jail with a whole different conversation than they've been throughout church history. Paul, an earthquake opened the doors and the chains. I don't know how an earthquake made the chains fall off, but it did. So many stories. Not just biblically. I, I think of even in recent days, I'm not going to take time on them, but different, you know, like the heavenly man tells the story. And I, I remember in the 70s, late 70s, no, maybe early 80s, the Like a Mighty Wind with Mel Tari, the miracles in Indonesia, incredible. People walked on water, food multiplied, doors opened. I mean, all incredible miracles where hundreds of thousands and millions were coming to the Lord. Paragraph I Peter said, the spirit of glory will rest on you when the persecution comes. You'll have a greater measure of glory operating in you. Paragraph J, I call this right in the middle of page three here. Those final 42 months, three and a half years, will be the most privileged, greatest time frame in human history. It will be the spiritually safest Meaning in that time frame, there will be more millions of godly, fearless, selfless, humble, wise, moving in the spirit. Millions and millions of them. It will be the safest time for a kid to be in a youth group because youth groups will have power on them. And the conversations will be very different than the youth groups of today. It will be the safest, spiritually safest. It will be the greatest because only one Generation and only one three and a half year time frame did God ordain to transition the earth to the age to come. I mean, it's a staggering in its honor and its implications. Your children, your grandchildren, I'm talking the 20 year old moms right now, the 20 somethings, your children and grandchildren, I believe, I might have the timing off, but I think I'm in the ballpark, but I'm not prophesying, it's just through the signs of the times will have the greatest privilege of being in their strength at that time of history. It will be so worth it, so worth it, that none of them will be struggling with spiritual boredom like so many youth groups are struggling with right now. They'll have hundreds of on-fire believers who are radically committed to purity and righteousness and moving in the Spirit. Roman number five, various things to consider. Premise one, again, how many have I got of these? Nine, eight or nine, somebody. We could have 50 of these premises. I just put as many as until I ran out of space on the page. I got a lot more that didn't fit on the page. I got my, my notes back in my office are like 46 pages or something. So I just pulled a few out just to kind of get the conversation started. And I don't know all very much, but I'm learning more. And I tell you, together, we're going to really get, we're gonna get to... The bottom of this, I don't mean just us, I'm talking about the body of Christ across the earth as we interact with each other. The answers will come in the corporate global interaction with one another. Premise one, there's gonna be important human dynamics still going on. I remember talking to one lady, I said, she goes, what's it gonna be like? I go, you're gonna have incredible friends, 
You're going to eat food. You're going to laugh. You're going to sing. You're going to tell jokes, have prayer meetings, and have great family time. She went, in the tribulation? I go, yeah. She goes, really? I said, I don't think it's going to be easy in the flesh in every area, but you're still going to eat. You're still going to laugh. You're going to have joy. Jesus said it. You're going to have joy unspeakable and full of glory, 1 Peter 1.8. It's going to be beyond what you're thinking about. What do you think? You're all going to be sitting in caves and prisons like frozen and just kind of like, she goes, I don't know. I don't know. I go, no. You may be a little skinnier. You may not eat as much, but I tell you, you're going to be okay. In terms of that regard, that's premise two. You know, the Lord, let's say, again, I'm not prophesying. I'm just, I'm guessing. Let's say that 20-something mom, it is her daughter and granddaughter that are the young moms in the future, that it's actually their children that, they're, that are facing this, their young children, but these, this, this 20-year-old, 20-something mom is now a grandmother, and she's walked in it for years, and she's put the foundation in, and we want to say to those future kids, the Lord formed those children for that hour of history. He knows what they'll face. He knows what they can handle. He knows what he's planned for them. We can trust him because, are you kidding? I saved them for this time of history, the greatest hour of history. I know what I'm doing. And if I, let them, if, if I allow them to suffer, they'll have grace. They will endure. And there will be a greatness and the glory of God will come out of it. And they will be grateful for it, I assure you. Premise three. It's only 42 months. Now, this is a big point because the fact it's 42 months, let me give you this hypothetical situation. It's so hypothetical, it's ridiculous, okay? So don't pray it. It's not a prophecy. It's not for you to grab in the air and say, that's for me. <laughs> what if, what if your loved one, whether it's a child, a spouse, whatever, is over in Europe and the COVID thing, blah, 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 and they get locked down. They can't come back. And they can't come back for six months or 12 months. And all the technology is down, so they can't even talk to you. But you, get, you find out with certainty that they, for some crazy way, they're living in an all-expense luxury resort on the oceanfront. <laughs> they're completely healthy, a lot of food, godly friends, great weather, incredible believers, and they're having the t phenomenal time, but they can't, you can't see them for six months. And you can't communicate because all the technology's down. But you know you're going to be with them in six months. Not only, they're not coming back home, you're going to join them. All expense paid, every need met. And in six months, you're there. That's what it's like when somebody's martyred. They're in a resort, an a, a oceanside resort. There it's called the paradise of the new Jerusalem. They have every need met. And you're going to be with them because it was 42 months. Now it's 32 months. Now it's 22 months. It's only nine more months and we will all be together forever. It's a very different thought because it's not 40 years of separation. The months are counting down and everybody knows the time. <coughs> and to the martyred person, they are in the most luxurious situation I mean, good friends, great worship, good health, awesome weather, music is amazing. They're going, hey, I'm good. I Trust me, I'm good. And uh, I miss you. But just know we're going to be together in a few minutes. The very fact that the Lord told us it was 42 months was an act of mercy. And it changes the way it feels when it's 6 and 8 and 12 months out. We're watching the time clock. And the reunion in paradise is guaranteed. Nothing can stop it. It feels very different. They're still grieving. There's still sadness, but it's not the same as before. Premise number four is that the heroic love, when all the trouble, there's something about trouble. There's something about bloodshed. When bloodshed happens, there's many, there's a certain kind of response that one kind of person has. Millions will have it. They will arise in, in heroic love. When life and death and bloodshed, they will, something of courage will arise in them. Another group will be opposite. They will be enraged with anger because of the injustice of the life and death situation and bloodshed. And another group, they'll just retreat in fear and cower. But many will rise up in, in heroic love, and that will be the spirit of the body of Christ. 
I mean, we've seen some of you undoubtedly. I watched a few of the documentaries of the 911, the 20-year anniversary, and the firemen who didn't even think they would do it. They charged up there. They go, what are we doing? They just kept going. And a number of stories, they did not know they had the courage. I'm talking about there will be millions. This is the caliber of the atmosphere of the body of Christ, of heroic love with deep sense of relevance. People are thinking, you know, people aren't going to be saying, I can't wait to get home because i got to watch the, you know, part four and five of that series on TV. They will be so gripped with relevance and purpose. They'll be done with spiritual boredom forever because things will be life and death and power and their hearts will be engaged. And I mean, I'm talking about young people will, old people will. It will be a very different atmosphere for the people to say yes to Jesus. Those that are overly engaged in their hobbies and entertainment and their recreation. They're trying to escape boredom. That will be a thing of the past to, the, to millions and millions and millions. Par, uh, premise five, twice Jesus, right there in, in, uh, in that final week, first on, on Tuesday in Matthew 24 and then on Thursday in John 16, he uses the analogy of labor pains. It's like he's speaking to the hearts of moms. He's going, moms, you know, if, I don't know uh, uh, so much about this. i got to be careful because i got a panel of moms coming up in a second, so i got to really be careful. But when I think of my interaction with young moms and they're finding out they're having a baby, they, are, they seem far more preoccupied on the baby, setting it up in the home, the name, planning the future, all these things. You know, it's, you don't normally go and say, hey, congratulations for the, oh, I heard you get prayed, congratulations. Sorry about the labor pains. I mean, you don't really do that. She's go, what? Oh, I heard, congratulations, sorry about the labor pains. It's like, okay, yeah. I, that's not what I, I think about them some, yes, but that's not mostly what I think about. And the end time church knows there's labor pains, I had to check this out on the internet, and they said the average labor of the first child is eight hours. I'm sure some is more and some is less, but the average is eight hours. A lady lives 80 years, and she has eight hours, and she has the baby, and she so thinks it's worth it, she has a third and fourth baby. I go, hey, don't you remember those labor pains? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. But this is really worth it. It's eight hours for 80 years, and now it's eight hours twice for 80 years. Yeah. Wow. He's like the one guy was complaining, and he says, honey, man, babies are so expensive. And the wife says, yeah, I know. They're so expensive. They cost a lot, but just think how long they last. Let's go to the top of page four. I mean, there's so much. All these are just little moments. Every, there's so many more points to make. I'm not trying to make the points. I'm already over spent my time because I want to have this little the panel. Various assumptions. There's no reason to assume your child's going to be martyred. I mean, there again, I, if there's a billion soul harvest and there's five, six, seven, eight hundred million believers now, so it's some say a billion, a number of fall away, you still end up with like 1.5 billion. Do you know how, and I'm not, I could give you 10 minutes on this, which is not, but I'm not, I'm not. Do you know how expensive it is and how much work it takes to kill people? <laughs> I'm dead serious. Nazi Germany killed 11 million people and the money and effort it took to house them, to kill them. Then you've got to burn or bury their bodies. Incredible amount of labor or diseases everywhere. And it took all of their machinery for 11 million people. So 100 million believers are going to be martyred. 200 million, 500 million. That still leaves a billion on the earth. Five, do you know what it would cost in time, labor, and energy to kill a couple hundred million people? I mean, I mean, it's not even practical. It's not even reality. I'm talking about government-sponsored death because just look at the Nazi machine. I've studied a bit of study of that over the many years and over the last 30, 40 years, whatever. There are so many 
human dynamics that are, it's hard to do that. And that was 11 million. Six million Jews, five million Gentiles. 100 million, 200, 500 million, you still got a billion. Why are you sure your child is gonna be one that's gonna be tortured and martyred? And another thing, using the, the Nazi uh, uh, paradigm, they, they didn't torture most of the people. You know why? It takes way too much time to torture people. I mean, they're cruel. They're demonic. They want to get rid of them. It takes hours and hours to torture people. Now, some were tortured, but I would guess it was far less than 1%. They lived in privation of starvation. I mean, they were, I mean, it was miserable in that regard. But when it came to dying, they shot them. They died in a second or put them in gas for a couple of minutes. They didn't have time to torture them. So this idea that your kids are probably going to get tortured, like, and who's going to do that? I don't know. The devil. When? Where? How? Why? Well, he's cruel. He wants to get rid of you. He doesn't have the manpower to do this. I got to put him in jail. Do you know that there's 10 million jail cells in the earth today? It's technically 11. Almost all of them are full. Literally, almost all of them are full in the earth. You can just go study it. I've done a little bit of study on that. Where are we going to put 300 million believers in jails? There's 10 million jail cells. They're almost all full. 10 million is not near enough for 300. That means a couple, that means one or two, 1.2 billion aren't going to be in jail. So how do you know your kid's going to be in jail? I don't know. That one movie. Okay, we keep going back to that one movie. Anyway, on and on and on. At the end, I got to say the end. Where's my notes here? At the very end. Ladies, get ready to come on up here. At the very end, let me see. I'm getting, page four. The point of it is, let's go clear to C. <laughs> at the very last, the very end. The the, there's going to be a paradigm shift. We're going to see suffering in the lens of the glory of Jesus and the worth of Jesus. And so I've just tried to tease out some exaggerated things. And my point of it, of teasing it out, is so you don't get into a frenzied mode where you can't study. You can't inter interact with truth. But I'm not trying to eradicate the root problem by telling you it's never going to happen to your kid. These things might happen to one of your children, but it's, it's remote the chances of it is very, very small percentage-wise. The sheer numbers that are involved and the quality of what's happening in the body of Christ and the earth and just the workforce and the small amount of time frame for it to happen. I mean, it will happen to some, but the numbers will be small percent. I'm convinced of that in terms of state-sponsored persecution. But the real issue is we need a paradigm shift to see the nobility and the glory of suffering and identification with him who is holy, totally worthy. I mean, the joy and the privilege, the apostle said, if we suffered with him. And so I'm not trying to figure out a way where we're guaranteeing we're never going to have trouble. I just don't want to stuck in a frenzy, you know, of emotional stir to where it's like, hey, calm down. You don't even know most of those things. But the real glory, as Paul said, Philippians 3.10, oh, that I would know him, the power of the resurrection and the fellowship, the glory that I could fellowship with him for a few moments on the earth, that I could suffer with him, and it would be part of my story with him for billions of years. Beloved, that is an honor. It's something the Western church, we don't know about yet, but that's going to be crystal clear. It's going to move us in a powerful way, but that's for another day. Ladies, come on up.